Members of the space community always aim for the stars. Some actually reach them. You're listening to Western Worlds. Hello and welcome back for another conversation here on Western Worlds. My name is John Kissy, and I'm coming to you this week as every week from the Centre for Planetary Science and Exploration at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. There are many members of the space community that have devoted their lives to the pursuit of knowledge in this area and progress in the ability of mankind to further understand the universe. This week we talked to one such man, Pete Warden, astrophysicist and retired Brigadier General of the United States Air Force, about his varied career and experience at all levels of space science, engineering and management. Let's go to the interview. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, maybe give us a bit of an idea about what drove the choices to go into the different areas and fields that you've gone into. I grew up uh, during the space race. Uh, remember when I was seven years old, uh, being marched into an elementary school classroom, and and I'll give away my age here, but uh, it was when the United States was first trying to launch satellites. It was 1957, and there was a little flickering television, uh, black and white television, and there was a rocket on it, and uh, uh, you know they did the usual countdown, and you know there was a flash on the screen, and that was it, and uh, the announcer was trying to figure out what happened. It was well, is that what happened? It turns out it was the Vanguard launch that blew up. Right. Okay. And uh, and I got pretty excited about. Uh, I said, you know, golly, you could get paid for blowing things up. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know, throughout the, the the next decade, I was very interested in, in space and astronomy, and uh, uh, went to the University of Michigan in 1967 to major in astronomy. I wanted to go work in the in the space program. The uh, uh, there was about two hundred people that were going to major in astronomy. It turned out six of us ended up getting degrees. Uh, two of us ended up getting a doctorate. So uh, either we were incredibly lucky, or the rest of them were smarter than we were. Uh, but uh, I also at that time I was uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, and and uh, uh, I chose to voluntarily join the the military. I was a uh, what in the United States is called a Reserve Officer Training Corps cadet, and meant the Air Force paid for my education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they uh, allowed me to go off to graduate school and get my doctorate, uh, which I finished in 1975 in astronomy. Uh, and then I went on active duty in the Air Force, and I had no intention of staying in the Air Force for a long period of time. Uh, I managed to get assigned to a solar observatory that the Air Force uh, partly owned in, in southern New Mexico. and uh, uh, But... Uh, one thing led to another, and after about five years there, I decided I wanted to move to Los Angeles. And uh, uh, so I got the Air Force to move me, uh, but uh, I had a part-time faculty position at UCLA in astronomy, which I intended to slide over. But you know how these things work. One thing led to another. Uh, President Reagan had his Star Wars initiative, and I ended up getting involved in that. Uh, and so I spent 29 years in the U.S. Air Force. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, Retired as a brigadier general, which is uh, far higher than anybody thought I would get or I thought I would get. But uh, it was a fun career. We uh, 
did a lot of cool space things. Uh, the, one of the things that we did uh, in the Star Wars program is we sent a probe to the moon called Clementine. Mm -hmm. It was, a, it was a, both a military and a NASA test to, uh, that mapped the moon. Uh, we did a reusable rocket test. Uh, a lot of people think Elon Musk did the, early, the first one here, reusable rocket, a few months ago, but actually we did it 20 years before. Uh, but uh, uh, it, was, it was an interesting career, but my true love was always astronomy. So when I got out of the, uh, the Air Force, I took a job as a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, uh, where I stayed for three years but couldn't stay away from the government. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, was was hired at NASA to run one of the NASA centers, the NASA Ames Research Center, uh, which is, uh, golly, it was the most fun job I ever had. It was, uh, uh, we had 2,500 people there and uh, all doing cool aeronautics and space stuff, mm -hmm. uh, right in the middle of Silicon Valley, so it was kind of a dynamic place. Uh, we, we were right next door to, to a, a little startup you might have heard of called Google, I think is their mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was funny, when I first got there in the, in the early in the you know by 2004 they were uh, only slightly larger than the center but they've, they've grown a little more than NASA did uh, but uh, it, it was a really fun job um, uh, we did a lot of cool missions uh, the uh, uh, sent two missions to the moon mm -hmm. uh, the first one we actually impacted the moon it was called the L cross mission the, the mm -hmm. lunar crater observing and sensing satellite uh, uh, the second one was called the uh, LADI, the Lunar Atmosphere Dust Environment Explorer. Uh, uh, some other missions, we have the Kepler mission, which has shown that planets like the Earth are common in the galaxy. There may be 25% uh, of the stars in the galaxy have a planet at least the size of the Earth in kind of an orbit like the Earth. So a really fun job, but uh, uh, one of the things I got to, it was really a privilege was to get to know some of the high net worth people in Silicon Valley, and uh, uh, as, as I tell people, that you hang around long enough, you get invited to A-list parties, yeah, and uh, uh, a lot of these high net worth people are technical people. They were graduate students in places like Stanford in computer science and physics and so forth, and uh, they had a strong interest in the the questions of life in the universe. Uh, uh, how do we make science more uh, uh, more wonderful? Uh, uh, indeed, uh, a couple of them had sponsored what's called the Breakthrough Prize, which is the largest prize in science. Uh, we like to call it the Academy Awards of Science. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually have uh, Vanity Fair that does the Oscar party, that do, does the event. But at any rate, they did that event, and they did it at the NASA Ames Research Center. It's the only black tie affair in Silicon Valley. And I got to know a number of, uh, of these billionaires. And uh, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, they asked me to come and run the Prize Foundation. Uh, but also to uh, to talk about uh, initiatives and uh, start some initiatives. Uh, we announced the first one last summer, which we call Breakthrough Initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in London. Uh, we had Stephen Hawking yes. and uh, uh, the Yuri Milner, who's one of our sponsors, uh, uh, committed a hundred million U.S. dollars to uh, a renewed search for uh, uh, intelligence in the universe, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, that's our first initiative. We have more uh, in the works uh, uh, coming along, but it's been pretty exciting. Your, your first love was astronomy, as you mentioned. You took several roles in those kind of roles, but now you find yourself working on the search for life in particular. The, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, 
started in the 1960s in earnest. Uh, there were, uh, I mean, there's been people that have thought about it. Uh, uh, indeed, in 1924, the U.S. Navy turned off all of its radios so they could listen for signals from Mars when it came closest to the Earth. So there, it's not a, a new area, but really in the 1960s we started to look seriously. Uh, but uh, it had always been a bit of a, a kind of a cottage industry. Uh, the U.S. government tried to push uh, SETI. Uh, in fact, that center I ran, NASA Ames Research Center, uh, it had a SETI program, but it caused a lot of controversy with the U.S. Congress, and it was terminated. Uh, not much has been done for a decade. Uh, conversely, the question of life in the universe is, uh, in the last 20 years, has formed a new field called astrobiology. And this really has the fundamental questions of, of how did life begin and where else is it, which are perhaps the most exciting questions of science. So the, the SETI question, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is really part of that. Uh, because, you know, okay, we'd like to find if we're the only life, but what we would really like to do is find other intelligence that we can communicate with uh, and, and gives us really confidence we're not alone. So this is, the question has always been really at the heart of, 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 of my interest is, uh, and I'm particularly interested in, in the nearest stars. You know, it would be really wonderful if there was an alien intelligence somewhere nearby. You know, uh, now nearby is still pretty far away. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it takes light four years to get even to the nearest star. Uh, it's a it's a, a hundred thousand times further away than the than the planets in our solar system. So, uh, but that's pretty nearby still on a cosmic scale. So, in order to find life, we have to first look at other planets. So, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the areas you've been involved in regarding exoplanets. Well, there's a number of different aspects for the the search for life, and 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 of course we're looking for any life, and you know the. Probably, you know, most life will be microbial, you know, very small. Uh, much of what the world's space agencies do is to look in our solar system. So the place that we think is most likely is probably Mars. Uh, and so the engineering is to go to Mars and to start doing experiments that could, could you find microbial life. Uh, there's been some experiments done. Uh, there's some argument of how negative they were. There were some people who thought they were positive. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, NASA and the European Space Agency and the, and, the, and the Japanese Space Agency and others are now looking at missions to go really confirm if there's life there. Uh, there's also other places in our own solar system that the, the are nearby. Uh, you know, Jupiter is the biggest planet that has... Uh, one moon that, that seems to have a giant ocean mm -hmm. on it called Europa. And, uh, you know, if we could figure out how to get through the ice on it, uh, the, the, that's a place to look. But uh, uh, the engineering there is to actually go there. Uh, of course, we may find nothing. Uh, there may only be life on Earth uh, that, that it arose here. Uh, so the next question is other stars, uh, other solar systems. Uh, as I said, the nearest one is four light years away. The, uh, we're pretty sure that all of these stars have solar systems now because of missions that have been done by NASA and others uh, that show that virtually every star has a solar system. Mm -hmm. So what we really want to do is, is begin to study those planets and even to, to find them. Uh, you know, we're now beginning to find planets around a lot of stars. 
we have a few that we found around the nearest stars, but we need better instruments. Mm -hmm. And the uh, to date, the way you find a planet is you you look at the star that it's orbiting and see if there's some effect the planet has in a star. I mean, one effect is if we're lucky, it might pass in front of the star and you see a decrease in light. Uh, the other thing you might see is that as the planet goes around the star, uh, it pulls and tugs on the star, and you could see changes of the star's movement, uh, either in what's called radial velocity. So that, uh, I mean, it turns out these are very small speeds. That the, if a planet goes around a star like the Earth, the the speed that the star changes because of that tugging is about the speed that you walk. So it's not very much. And uh, uh, so there are instruments that, are to, that can look very precisely. Uh, most of those use a, a very large telescope on the ground to gather enough light so we can study the star. So that's one way. Uh, but what you really want to do is actually take a picture that shows the planet, to see the planet directly. And, and the planet is much fainter than the star, a billion times fainter. And it's sort of equivalent that if you had a, a big searchlight, that uh, was aimed at you and there was a firefly that flew in front of it. That firefly is the same relative brightness to that searchlight as the, as the Earth is to a, to a star. So it's a pretty hard job. So people have thought about instruments that can block the light of the star and see the light of that little firefly that's the planet. And these are now maturing. Uh, that Within the next uh, five or ten years, uh, the first of those instruments will be launched into space. And those are solar occultation? Yeah, they're called uh, coronagraphs because they're based on a, a technology that was done over a century ago to block the sun out to see its outer atmosphere called the corona. And so the, uh, there are plans to, to do those. Uh, uh, NASA has plans and there are other uh, space agencies that have plans. Uh, but you also can do a coronagraph on the ground with the next generation of really huge telescopes on the ground. Uh, we're now starting to build telescopes that are 30 to 40 meters in diameter. So I mean, it's a huge telescope. Uh, those and as well as telescopes in space can begin to actually pick out that that little glint of light that's the, that's the planet. Of course, the next thing is, okay, you see there's a planet there. Is, What's it, what's it made of? What's it got on it? So what you would do is want to get a spectrum where you look at the colors of light with enough detail to see what's in the atmosphere of that planet. Uh, and, and if we would look for things that, that were indicative of life. Uh, on the Earth, for example, the, the oxygen in our atmosphere was caused by life over the last few billion years. So we might look for oxygen. Can you see evidence of oxygen? Um, of course, the other thing that's necessary for life on Earth is water. We'd probably look for water. Maybe we would see a chemical like chlorophyll that's uh, evidence of plant life. So those, uh, that's the next step. And we think probably by the middle or the end of the 2020s, we can begin to, to look at the nearest few hundred stars and, and find planets and see if any of them are life-bearing. Uh, of course, that doesn't tell you whether there's intelligent life there. Uh, so the other way to do that is just to see, uh, is to use big radio telescopes or optical telescopes and see if there's some evidence of an intelligent signal. And uh, uh, that's a project that I'm involved with now that's funded with private money because governments are reluctant to fund that. Mm. I suppose for a lot of our listeners, a question that will pop into their heads is, okay, say the nearest star 
which is the Centauri's. Is it Alpha? Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri's the nearest star. Um, can we send? Can we send a probe there? Are, are we? Do we have the technology to to send something of ourselves there? Well, that's a incredibly important question, and I think the answer is this century probably yes. It's a, a lot faster than we can go today. Uh, if you wanted to get to the nearest star in a reasonable amount of time, say in 20, 30, 40 years, you need to go uh, about a tenth the speed of light. And that's uh, something like uh, you know, 30,000 kilometers a second. Uh, the fastest that we've sent probes so far are 30 kilometers a second. So we have to go a thousand times faster. Uh, but that's not out of the question. Uh, in the last century, if you look at the speeds we went at the beginning of the century and the speeds we went at the end of the century, uh, those were a thousand times faster. And so uh, can we continue that trend? And there are, seems to be ways we can do that. Uh, the, uh, you need a lot of energy, uh, but uh, the technologies to push something to a thousand kilometers a second, to 10,000 kilometers a second seem to be within reach of humanity. Now, it's likely that our initial probes would be really tiny, uh, but the ability to pack a lot into a little tiny package is, is you know, your cell phone. The guts of your cell phone are a few grams, so they're kind of a, you know, maybe we could send something like that. Uh, I think probably uh, by the middle of the century, maybe sooner, we'll start seeing our first interstellar probes where you know, it maybe just fly by and, and, and look close up at these planets. If we found one that, based on our remote sensing that we're doing with telescopes over the next few years that had life, we'd certainly want to get a better image of it. So uh, I think just as last century was a, the century we, we first begin to move off our planet to think what's in our solar system, the next century is where we're going to move out of our solar system into the galaxy. Uh, pretty exciting time to be alive. Have there already been discussions to consider a protocol for that? So have people talked about if they could send something, what, what they would send, what the mission would be, what would be, what would be the general idea? Well, the first serious discussion of an interstellar mission was in the 1970s. Uh, that uh, I mean, there were studies that people had done, but there was the, the British Interplanetary Society commissioned a study uh, that we called, I think, the Daedalus Study. And uh, uh, there was a mission thought of it. Of course, at that time, we were thinking of Apollo, and we were going to send a bunch of people. And uh, this was an immense spaceship powered by, you know, basically nuclear bombs. Yes. And uh, yeah. the, uh, uh, but it was feasible, you know, a little bit far-fetched. Uh, since then, people began to think about smaller and smaller Things and uh, uh, there have been some very serious studies done uh, in the last decade about uh, technologies that might uh, that might get us interstellar distances. Uh, about five years ago, in the United States, there was a, a foundation that was actually formed called the Hundred Year Starship uh, Foundation that uh, I was involved in helping to set that up. Mm -hmm. but it caused a little bit of controversy, but they have an annual conference where people talk about interstellar questions. Can we? You know what's there? Can we think about ways to, to, to go there? Some of them are use physics we understand and uh, look you know hard but feasible. Others are a little bit more uh, use the word speculative mm -hmm. and uh, and maybe a little far fetched. But uh, one never knows. 
and there are real experiments uh, that are starting to go on about uh, both the less far-fetched and more far-fetched. Uh, there are now even small companies that have, and groups that have been formed to develop, uh, uh, you know, nuclear fusion uh, to the point where it can be used as a, uh, as a, uh, as a starship uh, drive and other even, you know, more exciting areas. Is there any particular star that's been singled out, or is it simply closest first? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, obviously, we need to search what's most interesting. And uh, I think, again, in the next decade, the, the most important thing to do is to, is to really study in detail the planets around the nearest stars. And uh, if we find one that has a life-bearing planet, that becomes automatically our, our target. Uh, there's quite a discussion in the scientific community right now of, uh, of what kind of star you need. Now, of course, we, we live around... A, you know, uh, actually, it's not quite as common a star as people are always told. It's a, a little bit, it's a lot bigger and hotter than most of them. It's, it's called a G-dwarf. Uh, stars like the sun, there's, uh, out of the nearest 50, there's only, uh, you know, five or six. So, of course, we've done a lot of looking at those. As luck would have it, or maybe pe- people might say fate, uh, the nearest star system, which has three stars, has two stars that are kind of like the sun. That's the Alpha Centauri system. Uh, it has a third star that's more typical of, of stars. It's a small, it's called a red dwarf star. It's about a tenth the uh, mass of the sun and much smaller. But, uh, you know, the, because it's the closest star system and also, ironically, the one that has stars most like the sun, I think it's an awful good target to study in detail. And uh, if, if we're really, you know, uh, the the powers of the universe have conspired to the way that that they might. And if we find a life-bearing planet there, then that automatically becomes a a a real goal of humanity in this century to figure out how to how to send probes there and to study and get more detail. Uh, you know, this is a topic that I think is is going to become increasingly both a scientific and engineering challenge. Uh, I think this is the century that, that humanity graduates into the galaxy. You're listening to Western Worlds. Let's go to the discussion. Well, that was a really interesting uh, interview with uh, with Pete Warden. What did you What do you think about uh, his interview? I had you know fun listening to it. It was great to see his you know how. He did astronomy and then went into like the army and then, you know, came back to astronomy uh, and, you know, like, actually heading um, one of the sites of NASA and uh, now still doing, you know, um, work with the X Prize and kind of inspiring the next generation to think out of the box and, um, you know, look for life in the universe. And so his, his interests have been like, varied from like administration to science to protection I guess because mm. being an army yeah, so yeah. like yeah. so like a lot of uh, different areas that yeah. he has touched into yeah I, I felt that as well I thought it was very interesting it's always interesting hearing from people who have managed to merge their career with their interest and uh, what I found was that uh, was that he'd managed to do that at every stage of his career so uh, from the moment that he started um, 
educating himself. He was uh, in the area of astrophysics, and uh, when he joined the uh, military, he joined the Air Force, he uh, he became the head of an observatory, didn't he? So he managed to um, get himself into a position, even in the Air Force, where he was able to work to his strengths, and that's something that uh, um, is very important to hear for a lot of people. Um, People don't feel that they're that, that it's possible for them to to meld their interest with with what they you know what they're doing for their career, and uh, and so it's good hearing hearing from people who've managed to do that and also been so successful that they've like you said they've managed to become the head of one of the sites of NASA which is not to be sniffed at so it it you know it proves that you can do it you can be successful while doing that and. Um, I also felt I just got, got the general feeling that he was a very interesting guy, um, and he had lots of lots of really, really interesting experience. I mean, what what did you think about hearing about his his experience and how, and you know the, the adventures he'd had? I think it was fun. I mean, you know, uh, he he described like how he first came into contact about like the space like he grew up during the space program you know like oh, that's not often you hear yeah, now exactly, right exactly. like nowadays we grew we are in era where we are preparing for the mars program i guess yes, you know like wow. you're preparing for exploring the new worlds but at that time just you know just listening to people how they got inspired by just watching yeah maybe one launch or just how you know they heard from astronauts how uh, they got inspired and they went to space and how um what kind of training they did and things just simple things like that you don't get to hear anymore because yeah we go to space but well yeah a few hundred kilometers up that way instead of going to toronto from london right so it's uh, that's the interesting point that you make there is that uh for him, it was uh, for his generation. It was the first time, so this had never ever been done. Now, for everybody who comes after that, you know, this is something that's just already been done. It's you know, it's old news. Yeah, I mean, you it know. would be different I mean, when it comes to the Mars program, right? Like, yeah, if you will have the first, pe- it was like the first people on the moon. It would be like yeah. the first people on Mars, Mars, right? Whether it's a country, whether it's an organization or a company, private. The, public doesn't matter you know like just having someone there like that would inspire more people and i think we already have a good set of upcoming generation people who are already inspired by you know seeing what has not been done where you were you know you need that inspiration to just hear how just one thing clicked with them and just inspired and And, sparked uh, that interest and also the experience of uh to, to know there are people who are still working in the area who were you know young when that mm-hmm. happened yeah you know? yeah so you've got you still got the chance of that continuity whereby well when it when it actually happens maybe there won't be so many of those people still around but you know hopefully if things move you know a bit you know quite fast yeah then, <laughs> then we'll have we'll have a situation where there are some overlapping generations and there'll be like a well of experience to draw on exactly yeah that's i think you know their um their thoughts their experience their um their training is something that they can help with the new generation of astronauts i'm pretty sure they're they're doing that with the current generation of astronaut but it's 
different because astronauts right now are preparing to go somewhere, but there isn't anything set in stone yeah. until like 2030s, which is yeah. still quite a long still time. Long yeah. Time, I um, I'm kind of, uh, I, I'm kind of hopeful that things move faster than they appear um, to be going. But, yeah. You know, these things can't be rushed, I guess, but uh, it'll be, it, w- it, would, it would certainly be nice to have some people mm-hmm. from that era to still see it. To see it, to see yeah. the, next, the next stage of, of the exploration the occur. Yeah. It would just be a nice kind of continuity to have happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that it will be nice for people to hear while it's going on, you know, while they're going through their experiences of being mm-hmm. around for this. Yeah. From people who have done it before. Exactly. And, and to, to compare what the what the experience is. Yeah, and I, I like how he's keeping his, you know, um, interest in astronomy, astrophysics, or space still alive by collaborating with people like Stephen Hawking and organizations like SETI and Google and things like that to just bring in that force of inspiration for people to to keep doing and keep pushing their limits and thoughts and ideas out to the point where, you know, we are able to find life. We have the kind of technology to look for those things or the kind of technology to go to next area like Mars or Moon or Titan or Europe or whatever that be, um, to just be there to inspire people and, you know, push for, for that kind of exploration. That's our show for this week. Western Worlds is a production of the Centre for Planetary Science and Exploration. This episode was produced by John Kissy and Parshti Patel and featured an interview by co-host John Kissy. Our roundtable discussion featured co-hosts John Kissy and Parshti Patel. Our editors were John Kissy and Parshti Patel and I'm John Kissy. Our theme music is Helio Sheath by Sean Kim. You can continue the conversation online and listen to past episodes or learn more about Western Worlds by visiting our website at cpsx.uwo.ca slash westernworlds. You can also visit our pages on Twitter and Facebook. On behalf of everyone here at Western Worlds, I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight. I hope you can join us again right here next time on Western Worlds. (laughs) 